Welcome to the AUA Summer School Webinar, 2020 Guideline uh, Disorders of Ejaculation. And I would like to introduce uh, Dr. Alan Schindel, our course director, and I will turn it over to him. Thank you. My name is Dr. Alan Schindel. I'm on the Faculty of Urology at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm joined on this panel by two esteemed colleagues, Dr. David Rowland from Valparaiso University and Dr. Serge Carrier from McGill University. This course represents the culmination of a great deal of effort on the part of AUA and also my panel members. We do wish to disclose that this is a one and a half year process that has taken uh, a good deal of time and effort from a multinational team of experts. The evidence report was received in September of 2019 and the guideline composed during that time. It was sent out for peer review by a multinational panel of experts and has been vetted by the AUA Practice Guidelines Committee and the AUA Science and Quality Control Council. Final approval is at this time pending, hence the lack of availability of the uh, actual guideline itself. We do expect this to be approved by the end of this month, and this will be released for review by AUA membership in the very near future. So the learning objectives of this session is to analyze and become familiar with the evidence for the management of disorders of ejaculation as articulated in our new guideline. It is important that we as urologic practitioners recognize the role and the importance of mental health evaluation and our mental health colleagues in helping to manage this troublesome diagnosis. The guideline is designed to help people understand the diagnostic and therapeutic decision-making and also understand the evidence basis underlying the decisions we make regarding treatment of premature ejaculation and delayed ejaculation. Finally, this does serve as an opportunity to learn about the basic process by which AUA guidelines are developed and to understand the robust evidence-based underpinnings of what we do in urologic practice. In terms of disclosures, none of the speakers have topic-related disclosures to make. You see them listed right here. I do wish to disclose and thank the Sexual Medicine Society of North America for their participation, both financial and intellectual, in the crafting of this guideline. Sexual climax is associated typically with both orgasm and ejaculation. In the majority of cases, men experience a premonitory sensation of ejaculatory inevitability, the point at which ejaculation becomes inevitable and orgasm quickly follows. This phenomenon is incompletely understood, but appears to be modulated primarily in the central nervous system by a number of both psychological and tactile inputs that trigger an ejaculatory and orgasmic response in men. The central mechanisms are incompletely understood, and certainly from the urologist's perspective, they are really somewhat outside of our realm of practice. It is important to recognize, however, the primary and very important role that serotonin metabolism plays in the control of the ejaculation process. We understand this very well from experience using serotonergic drugs uh, for management of depression and other mental health issues. The fact that these drugs oftentimes have very pronounced effects on ejaculation latency has been capitalized upon for management of some troublesome conditions of ejaculation, but can be a bothersome side effect for others. Obviously, this is a gross oversimplification uh, and more detail is available when the guideline is released, but in broad terms, it is worthwhile primarily to consider the importance of serotonin in the management of ejaculatory disorders. It is also important to understand to some extent the pelvic events that occur and modulate the process of ejaculation. 
Ejaculation consists of two distinct phases, the first of these being emission, which is under the control of the uh, sympathetic nervous system, involving closure of the bladder neck and deposition of seminal fluid in the posterior urethra. The second phase of ejaculation is ejection, that is to say expulsion of semen under control of the somatic nervous system derived from the S2 through 4 nerve roots. Because of this complex interplay between the autonomic and somatic, somatic nervous system, it is understandable that many conditions that affect neurologic integrity can have an impact upon ejaculation in men. Orgasm is a distinct phenomenon defined as such. It is distinct from pelvic events in the notion that it can occur in the absence of ejaculation uh, or orgasm can occur in the absence of ejaculation or ejaculation can occur without orgasm. We currently have a limited understanding of what actually triggers orgasm, but we understand that dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphins are highly relevant neurotransmitters in this process. Disorders of ejaculation cause substantial bother to patients. We don't fully understand the pathophysiology because in large part, the physiology itself has not been completely worked out. Although our understanding is incomplete, a number of evidence-based management options do exist. And when evidence base is limited, we do have some data to suggest what might be a rational approach forward for helping patients deal with these distressing conditions in clinical practice. It is worth considering existing definitions of premature ejaculation. Historically, this has been a very difficult to define disorder. You can see here three definitions promulgated by major medical societies. You notice that in highlighted terms, there are certain unifying characteristics. First off, in red, short latency time. Uh, a rapid period of time between penetration and ejaculation, signifying a short latency time and a short sexual encounter. In blue, the sense of lack of control. The man feels that he cannot control when ejaculation occurs and it occurs without his particular will or desire to have it occur. And in green, the important criterion of negative personal consequences. These three elements are sort of the core diagnostic criteria that we considered when crafting our own definition and when considering the appropriateness of any sort of medical therapy for ejaculation disorders of the premature type. The epidemiology of PE, uh, you'll notice if you read this literature that oftentimes quoted a uh, statistic of 30% of men having premature ejaculation. I do wish to clarify that the numbers quoting a 30% rate of uh, premature ejaculation are derived primarily from single item patient reported outcomes. It cannot therefore be taken as evidence of actual presence of clinical premature ejaculation. Uh, according to literature reviews by an expert panel convened by the International Society for Sexual Medicine, an approximately 5% prevalence uh, is probably more in line with clinical practice, still representing a very substantial number of men who have distressing issues with premature ejaculation. Delayed ejaculation is somewhat more difficult to define, but once again, if you review the various definitions that exist, you will see similarity of criteria. In this case, uh, a bothersome increase in latency time, uh, increased difficulty achieving orgasm, once again, in the context of appropriate stimulation and causing personal distress. Data on delayed ejaculation is much more limited, but it is a condition that we will certainly encounter in urologic practice. And my suspicion is that in many cases it is clinically silent because delayed ejaculation is in many cases associated with disorders of erectile dysfunction. A number of other disorders of sexual climax exist. Uh, the discussion of these conditions is somewhat out of the scope of this particular guideline, in part because evidence basis for any one of these is quite limited. 
it is recommended that in patients who present with one of these conditions that the condi uh, situation be evaluated fully and appropriate questions asked. But at this time, the guideline does not specifically address these issues in clinical practice. I wish to thank the committee, you know, without whose participation, this guideline would not have been possible. You can see here again, a wide representation of specialties, primarily urologists, but many mental health experts, um, uh, non-neurologic physicians, a patient representative, and certainly uh, a great inter, uh, interprofessional team that spent a lot of time working on this guideline to make it the best it could be. So I do give them my heartfelt thanks. The AWAY guideline is meant to be a framework for evaluation and management. Uh, our multidisciplinary team wrote it so as to be inclusive of any sort of practitioner who may benefit from guidance on management of ejaculatory disorders. It is, of course, primarily aimed at urologic practitioners. And ultimately, the guidelines are not a law. They are an evidence-based set of recommendations promulgated and reviewed by experts. It is a guidance document, but it is not the law. And therefore, the ultimate correct decision for any individual patient is one that is made with careful consideration of his particular circumstances and share, careful shared decision making uh, with his patient or provider. The guidelines are crafted uh, with criteria specified a priori, and evidence is graded by an evidence-based methodologist uh, regarding high, moderate, and or low confidence in the data that we have to support. In certain circumstances where data are limited, we may apply clinical principles or expert opinions to make recommendations based on the panel's expertise and experience. Recommendations are in turn strong, moderate, or conditional, based primarily on the degree of risk and benefit that the patient may realize. And in general, strong recommendations are oftentimes supported by high evidence basis, but this is not necessarily always the case. With that, I would like to turn the presentation over to Dr. David Rowland uh, to continue discussing premature ejaculation. Thank you, Dr. Schindel. Uh, welcome to the participants. I have two topics that I'm going to discuss. Uh, the first is regarding the definition for premature ejaculation. And the second uh, is related to the recommendation that clinicians consider referring men with premature ejaculation to uh, a mental health professional. Let's start out with definitions. First, as with uh, other societies, the AUA has distinguished between lifelong premature ejaculation and acquired premature ejaculation. We'll begin with lifelong premature ejaculation, which is defined as consistently poor ejaculatory control, associated bother, and ejaculation within about two minutes of initiation of penetrative sex. Notice that, again, the three elements that have been uh, prevalent in the other definitions are all here. The one major difference is that uh, the temporal parameter of two minutes is provided rather than one minute. We'll come back to that in a minute, in two minutes, actually. Uh, just a little bit of background information. You should know that ejaculation latency times are highly variable, anywhere from several seconds to many minutes. If you look at the table on the left, the illustration on the left, and you look at the uh, horizontal axis, here we have seconds to ejaculation. And on the vertical axis, we have the percentage of the population. So from this particular population study, a very small percentage, namely 2.5% 
of men have ELTs of about one minute or less. And this is actually what led to the, what partly what led to the one minute criterion. However, if you look at the uh, uh, figure on the right, you see that if you define men with, ejac with premature ejaculation, by other kinds of means, such as poor or very poor ejaculatory control, you see that men who identify as having premature ejaculation, who have very poor or poor ejaculatory control, have a range of ejaculatory latencies, anywhere from, zero, from, from one to several minutes and actually extending out to five, six, seven minutes. So it's not as clear cut as one might believe that men with premature ejaculation have a one minute uh, uh, ejaculatory latency. So let's talk about the ejaculatory latency. The AUA definition for lifelong PE extends the ELT to two minutes. Well, what's the problem with the one minute criterion? First, that one minute criterion was based on early preliminary data those data were not validated by using an independent measure of PE. In other words, when you establish a criterion, you have to use some independent measure in order to verify or validate that particular criterion, and that was not the case. Also, those early studies did not include control group comparisons, so it was very difficult to say that, well, it should be this latency when, in fact, you had no comparison group for those that were showing what might be considered to be a normal or typical ejaculation. And in fact, in one study uh, that was used to establish the one minute criterion, men were pre-selected for an ELT of less than 90 seconds. And you can see that that would automatically lead to a bias of a short ejaculatory latency if in fact you were selecting on a particular uh, time criterion in order to establish that one minute criterion. Furthermore, the one-minute ELT includes approximately 80 to 90% of men with PE. If you think about area under the curve, that represents a Z-score of under positive 1.0. So there are a lot of men to the right of that uh, cutoff point. Our thinking is that it's probably best to be more inclusive than rather exclusive. So by extending that one minute ELT to two minutes, in fact, the definition or the criteria become more inclusive. The one minute cutoff, by the way, includes only, as you saw before in that graph, only 2.5% of men. But in fact, studies on community samples consistently indicate a prevalence closer to about four to 8%, suggesting that the one minute criterion might be too strict. There are also data suggesting that the ELT should be longer. For example, studies that use self-identification in terms of identifying or defining men with PE, or that use ejaculatory control poor to very poor ejaculatory control as the major way of defining men with uh, PE. These studies typically show median ELT somewhere between about one to two minutes. Hence, if you use another criterion for establishing PE, the ELT is typically more than one minute. Furthermore, men who report ELTs between one to two minutes are typically more similar to men reporting ELTs of less than one minute on 
the other dimensions of ejaculatory uh, control and bother distress. In other words, those men in the one to two interval are more like the men who are less than one minute as opposed to men who are between two and five minutes. And there is also research showing that men, even those men with lifelong PE that are untreated, over time may show variation of ELTs that are greater than one minute. This was the case when such men were re-examined six years later. The other two criteria, ejaculatory control. Without ejaculatory control, there is no premature ejaculation uh, diagnosis. What do we mean by ejaculatory control? Ejaculatory control refers to a measure of self-efficacy, that is, the ability of the man to actually achieve a particular outcome, in this case, that outcome being uh, delaying or postponing ejaculation. When you think in terms of ejaculatory control, it doesn't simply mean controlling ejaculation. Some men feel as though that's not the relevant phraseology. It may mean I can't delay or postpone ejaculation. It may mean that the man says, well, I'm ejaculating before I want to, before I wish to, and so on. And we find that actually over 70% of men with PE report poor or very poor ejaculatory control. The third criterion, what is meant by bother distress? We can think of bother distress as being manifested by any negative psychological or behavioral effect on the man, uh, the man's partner, or on the relationship. And bother is a term that really stands as a proxy for any number of possible um, emotional outcomes or verbalizations, such as I'm dissatisfied, it makes me anxious, I'm concerned, I'm depressed, I'm frustrated. All of those, and there are many more, are representations of bother. There may be actual behaviors. In other words, these may not be verbalized so much by the man with PE, but there may be behaviors that are manifesting negative uh, effects. Those uh, behaviors may include catastrophizing about the PE, avoiding intimacy, apologizing to the partner, and so on. So those are the three criteria. Oh, pardon me, okay. Bother distress applies to about 50% of men who ejaculate very rapidly. The 50% is perhaps below what you might expect, but I think most experts in this field attribute this to the fact that the word distress was often used in the early studies, and men, when they think about distress, are often thinking about things that require urgent remediation and therefore did not resonate very well with, uh, with men who were, in fact, meeting the other two criteria. It is, however, the bother and the distress that drives treatment-seeking behavior. Okay, that takes care of lifelong premature ejaculation. Acquired premature ejaculation essentially has the same characteristics, consistently poor ejaculatory control, associated bother, and an ejaculation latency that is markedly reduced from prior sexual experience. The AUA definition for acquired premature ejaculation therefore indicates that this is a later life onset due to some newly developed medical condition, a pathophysiological condition. It may be something psychological or interpersonal. Like lifelong PE, um, 
Acquired PE assumes poor to very poor ejaculatory control and significant bother and distress. Notice that the AUA definition for acquired premature ejaculation does not have strict time-based criteria. This is because while several reports have indicated that acquired PE men have longer ELTs than lifelong PE men, these findings are not consistent. So thus far, there is no consensus ELT for men with acquired premature ejaculation, or even a time range for ELTs for men with acquired premature ejaculation. Clinical experience suggests that men with acquired premature ejaculation typically have an ELT under about two to three minutes, or that their ELT is reduced by about 50% or more from prior experiences. But what you see here is that there is a, a reluctance to indicate any specific ELT. And this is purposeful. This flexibility allows for clinical judgment to play an important role, and it reflects the thinking that the consequence for false positives in terms of treatment strategies is relatively low. Again, going back to the idea that it's better to be more inclusive than more exclusive when it comes to these diagnoses. Okay, that takes care of our definitions. Let me turn to the second topic. And the second topic deals with the clinician's referral of men with premature ejaculation to a mental health professional with expertise in sexual health. So, such referrals are likely to result in some kind of psychological or behavioral intervention. These interventions may be cognitive, behavioral, psychodynamic, they may involve couples therapy. However, there are some goals or typical goals that are inherent in any kind of psychological or behavioral intervention, and these include the following. These inventions are intended to increase the ELT by altering stimulation patterns, perhaps reducing stimulation patterns, uh, perhaps by changing coedal co 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 positions, pardon me, patterns perhaps increasing awareness of the man's arousal and uh, of the premonitory sensations that are preceding premature ejaculation, uh, addressing interpersonal issues that may be related to the premature ejaculation, issues that might arise from uh, the partner, developing coping skills for the emotional fallout of feeling sexually inadequate, that is being unable to satisfy the partner, uh, one important goal is this final one, forming a couples alliance that facilitates the dyad owning the problem and finding a solution together. In other words, removing the blame, the onus, the burden from the man with the, with the problem and having the couple then see this as a relationship issue that can be solved together. These interventions may be used alone, or they may be used in combination with medical or pharmacological therapies. They typically involve brief therapy, that is anywhere from a half a dozen to 10 sessions. They may include relationship therapy, and they can be integrated with pharmacotherapy and the evidence suggests for the most part that combination approaches seem to be more effective than either approach by itself. 
the advantages of psychological behavioral interventions. Some of them are very obvious. There are no medications, no adverse side effects. They provide long-lasting strategies for dealing with premature ejaculation. No pills necessary, for example. They may reinforce and strengthen the couple's relationship as they see this as a problem which they own. The interventions typically focus on enhancing sexual relationship and sexual satisfaction rather than just on ELT. And this often provides a sense of self-control for the man in that he's using personal techniques that he has learned and can be incorporated into sexual expression rather than taking some kind of a pill or medication to fix the problem. The disadvantages, there may not be third-party coverage. There is no quick fix here. If you're talking six to 10 sessions, it's practice and it's work. The results are not always as reliably effective as proven pharmacotherapies. And the intervention may require a specialist who may or may not be available within a particular region or particular or to certain groups and so on. So that ends my presentation. Thank you very much. Let me now introduce the third presenter, Dr. Serge Carrier. Thank you, David. Okay, so my task tonight is to present the uh, management of premature ejaculation. Um, as a clinical principle, uh, as a clinician, you, you should address premature ejaculation as any other medical condition that you encounter in your practice. So you assess the medical, uh, but also the relationship and sexual history of the patient. You may perform a focused physical exam to evaluate patient with uh, premature ejaculation, depending on the condition. Um, it's important to be uh, non-judgmental. Um, uh, you have to be open. Uh, often patient or men are very stressed about the uh, premature ejaculation. So you want to reduce their uh, uh, stress when they encounter you. Um, you may ask about if they're bothered by their ejaculation, how much time passed between moment they penetrate and moment they, they ejaculate or come. Um, and I think the one important aspect is the control over uh, ejaculation. And depending on your the response you're going to get, you may add, have additional queries about the onset, the chronicity, uh, the distress, and the partner distress, and I feel that uh, uh, often this is a couple issue. Uh, so the distress of the partner may also influence uh, uh, treatment. And it's important to know if they use other treatment in the past. So it will uh, orient you to uh, go to uh, possibly other uh, uh, line of therapy. Um, physical examination is advisable, uh, but not strictly necessary. Uh, stopwatch assessment, really not recommended. Uh, this is really a donor when you uh, use that for uh, during the sexual activity. Um, but it's good for research, uh, but um, the self-reported IELT are as good as the stopwatch when you use it clinically. 
As for uh, some association or comorbidity with premature ejaculation, if you look at the lifelong premature ejaculation, um, performance anxiety, very common, relationship stress, obviously, uh, if there a man ejaculate uh, uh, too fast and it's bother and uh, he lack uh, control, that will put uh, stress on any relationship. Uh, there's been some report of hypersensitivity of the glands, uh, serotonergic uh, or dopaminergic activity, and maybe some overrepresentation of the pudendal nerve in the cerebral cortex. For acquired uh, premature ejaculation, um, personally, I feel performance anxiety is probably the one of the most common. But again, you may have some relationship stress. Erectile dysfunction may uh, cause uh, uh, the patient to ejaculate faster when he he sensed that his erection is decreasing. Some medication, prostatitis has been reported, and some endocrine disorder, especially uh, disorder of the thyroid. As for men uh, who have sex with men, um, a Bancroft uh, studied uh, uh, a gay men and uh, heterosexual men, and basically other studies have shown also that there's no significant difference between uh, the prevalence of premature ejaculation in uh, both population. And you should look at uh, men uh, having sex with men uh, similarly as uh, other men, and the assessment and treatment will be the same. And the distress uh, is also similar. Um, as a uh, conditional recommendation and a grade C evidence, uh, clinician may use validated instrument to assist in their diagnosis of premature ejaculation. And if you feel that you want to use those uh, standardized uh, instrument, there's a different questionnaire that have been uh, standardized, easily accessible. Uh, you use one of them, and uh, it's a very, it's a useful uh, tool to uh, assess the patient and also in follow up. Uh, to see if they're improving. Um, regarding adjunct testing, um, for a lifelong premature ejaculation, uh, you should not use any additional testing for the, evalua of, uh, for the evaluation of these men. For acquired premature ejac ejaculation, you may use some testing depending on if you suspect any uh, clinical condition associated with uh, acquired premature ejaculation. This question comes back very often in my uh, uh, patient. What about circumcision? Um, the, the panel um, and the guideline committee uh, advise uh, clinician uh, to tell their patient that the ejaculation latency is not affected by circumcision status. And that's a um, uh, grade C evidence. And there's no robust evidence um, uh, between the circumcision status and the ejaculation lattice in time. You may have a, a specific individual who have uh, some uh, specific um, disorder, if I may say, of the foreskin that may have an issue. But those are, uh, there's no gener generalization. It's really a specific to certain men. 
for uh, medical therapy, um, there is a first-line and second-line therapy. As a first-line therapy, and this is a strong recommendation with uh, grade B evidence, um, you should recommend e either daily SSRI, uh, on-demand clomipramine, uh, or dapoxetine, if it's uh, where it's available. It's not available in North America. Or you may also use uh, topical anesthetic as a first-line therapy. It's important uh, to recognize, though, that all pharmacotherapy for premature ejaculation are off-label in the United States. If you use a um, SSRI or a tricyclic uh, antidepressant agent, um, it is believed that the enhancement of serotonergic activity in the brain will delay ejaculation. If you use a topical anesthetic, uh, it will reduce the sensory feedback, uh, thus reduce, reducing arousal. However, in some men, it may also cause uh, uh, a complete loss of, uh, of sensation as well for the partner. As for the SSRI, um, if you use it uh, obviously off-label, um, you have the choice between uh, daily use uh, or on-demand. In daily use, um, if you look at the most commonly used, you have paroxetine, sertraline, citropolan, and peroxetine. And you can see on this slide the different dose you may use. Personally, I always start with the lowest dose. And if you use a on-demand, um, the most common use are paroxetine, sertraline, and peroxetine. As you can see in this meta-analysis, um, the daily use always give better result uh, on demand. If you use on-demand SSRI, um, many uh, researchers uh, recommend to start with um, in a, an initial two or three weeks, up to four weeks of daily use to, uh, to load the uh, effect of the SSRI, and then you can go and use them as on demand. But there is some caution in young patients with uh, depression and societal ideation when you use SSRI, or in patient, um, it's actually contraindication in patient with bipolar uh, depression may, because you may induce uh, a manic attack. Um, the most common adverse event is fatigue, yawning, and nausea, and diarrhea. And you may, uh, it is 6.30, almost seven o'clock now, so some of you may feel some yawning at the moment. It may not be depending on the SSRI use. Um, when you use daily SSRI, it's important to not to, uh, uh, to stop uh, their use cold turkey to avoid the serotonin syndrome uh, uh, in the patient. Clomipramine is a, is a tricyclic antidepressant. Um, in this trial by Choi in 2019, it was very efficient um, to increase the IELT almost by a fourfold in patients with um, uh, premature ejaculation. And this was an on-demand study. Um, nausea and dizziness were the most common side effect in these patients. For topical uh, anesthetic, in this uh, meta-analysis, you can see that uh, all of them are on the uh, uh, 
right side of the uh, difference, so favoring uh, uh, the topical agent over placebo. And, um, it, and all the studies actually uh, used as monotherapy, they actually increase the uh, ELT. Um, the most common uh, adverse effect is uh, numbness uh, or lack of sensation that can induce erectile dysfunction and partner discomfort because of the uh, product use. The partner may also complain of a lack of sensation. If the first line therapy failed, you may go for the second line therapy. And um, as a conditional recommendation and grade C evidence, uh, uh, clinician may consider the use of tramadol. Um, and as an expert opinion, you may also use an alpha blocker. As for tramadol, um, the uh, meta-analysis published in 2015 uh, um, show uh, some benefit using tramadol, but if you go in different studies, you have conflicting uh, results. But the, um, we're not really sure if its action is peripheral or central, uh, but if you, for sure, if you use it, just be uh, aware of the potential addiction in your patient. Uh, urologists are very familiar with the use of alpha blocker. Um, very often your patient will complain that their ejaculate uh, uh, volume is decreased or even they don't ejaculate. Um, although most studies using alpha blocker and premature ejaculation have a weak methodology, um, uh, some have so shown some efficacy um, of using alpha blocker. This is why it's, uh, it's an expert in opinion uh, to use it as a second line uh, uh, therapy. If a patient has um, uh, erectile dysfunction, the, uh, has an, a, a, and premature ejaculation, as an expert opinion from the guideline committee, it is recommended to follow uh, the treatment of uh, erectile dysfunction fo following the AUA guidelines uh, published uh, two years ago. However, if you look at the effect of uh, PD-5 inhibitor for premature ejaculation, um, most studies show uh, that the use of PD-5 inhibitor are, are not superior uh, uh, when used as monotherapy uh, versus SSRI. Uh, but um, although we don't recommend them uh, to be used as a monotherapy, if you have erectile dysfunction associated with premature ejaculation, um, the PD-5 inhibitor will uh, may and in most patients will have an effect. Patients with uh, erectile dysfunction, they have a sense of urgency to complete their um, uh, penetration and that will trigger uh, uh, or increase the rate of uh, premature ejaculation. This is why the uh, use of uh, PD-5 in that circumstance uh, may be useful in uh, your patient suffering from erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation. You may also combine uh, PD-5 inhibitor with SSRI. Um, the, um, the panel or the guideline committee feel that clinicians should advise 
patient that there's insufficient evidence to support the use of alternative therapy in the treatment of premature ejaculation. Obviously, because of a lack of uh, publication, this is an expert opinion. Uh, we feel also that clinicians should inform a patient that surgical management, including uh, injection of bulking agent, agent for premature ejaculation, uh, may, must or should be considered experimental and only be used in the context of an ethical board approved clinical trial. And this is due to the lack of uh, uh, data on their efficiency. Um, there's a, um, also the therapy that have been used um, uh, to treat uh, premature ejaculation, but the, there's a limited evidence base uh, in the literature um, for the committee to recommend uh, uh, the use of these uh, uh, therapy. And that include uh, pelvic floor physical uh, therapy, oxytocin antagonist, uh, hyaluronic acid uh, injection. And for the injection of the, uh, the data are really lacking. So it's important to uh, make it clear for your patient uh, that this need to be uh, used in a, uh, uh, in a study. For penile denervation, there was a, a study from China uh, reporting the um, uh, the study on the use of circumcision and also um, uh, partial denervation of the uh, glands at the time of the circumcision uh, versus circumcision only with uh, some improvement um, in um, IELT in these patients having a partial um, nerve uh, uh, removing of the nerve of the uh, uh, at the dorsal aspect of the glands, but the caveat of this is the uh, report of uh, loss of uh, sensation in some patients. So again, uh, these therapies should be done uh, in a clinical trial and uh, not as a routine uh, treatment for uh, a premature ejaculation. Um, uh, the, is, is it, it's the same for. Um, uh, acupuncture, herbal medication, uh, yes, SS cream and other uh, uh, uveritic uh, medicine. There's really limited uh, evidence uh, on the efficacy of these uh, treatment. Um, however, uh, the uh, guideline committee uh, do not recommend the use of uh, intracavernous injection for patient that uh, has only premature ejaculation. So premature ejaculation, it all depends uh, where you stand from uh, and um, how you perceive it. So I would like to thank you for your uh, uh, listening and watching. And I will uh, ask now to uh, Dr. David Rowland to uh, take the lead again and talk to you about delayed ejaculation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Carrier. Um, I'm going to talk about two, three topics. Uh, a little bit about the definitions for delayed ejaculation. Secondly, about the evaluation of delayed ejaculation. And third, 
about the guideline that uh, suggests that the clinician consider referral to a mental health professional for the man with delayed ejaculation. Let me make certain I have control here. Okay, so let's talk about the definitions. As with the PE definitions, the DE, delayed ejaculation definitions, distinguish between lifelong and acquired uh, delayed ejaculation. Lifelong delayed ejaculation is defined as lifelong, consistent, bothersome inability to achieve ejaculation or as an excessive latency to ejaculation despite adequate sexual stimulation and the desire to ejaculate. Of course, acquired delayed ejaculation is essentially the same, except that uh, its onset has been later on in life, but the characteristics are basically the same characteristics as lifelong uh, delayed ejaculation. Some preliminary information, as we've already discussed, but just as a reminder, most men ejaculate between about five to 10 minutes following penetration. So anything in this range, five to 10 to even 15 minutes is certainly considered to be typical ELT. However, once you get beyond that, ejaculation requiring 15, 20 minutes or more uh, beyond that, perhaps uh, to the point where there is some pain involved, perhaps to the point where uh, uh, the, the man is ready to give up because of uh, frustration, anything up in that range might be considered as delayed ejaculation. There is no specific time frame that's being recommended here. It's just a guideline or a way of conceptualizing this. And of course, that depends on individual circumstances. Perhaps age is an important factor here. Men, as they age, inevitably take longer to ejaculate. Perhaps physical condition. The man is perhaps not quite as physically fit as 20 years ago and therefore uh, has less stamina and so on. An important consideration, however, is the second point here, that many men with delayed ejaculation are able to masturbate to orgasm. And this suggests that it is something about the sexual, the coital um, uh, activity, not the stimulation per se, but the coital stimulation that might be responsible for um, the delayed ejaculation. In other words, many such men are able to actually reach orgasm when they masturbate. The etiology can be diverse. Uh, there's no clear etiology. Uh, there may be, uh, for, certainly for acquired premature ejaculation, uh, pardon me, acquired delayed ejaculation, there may be uh, damage to any component of the central or peripheral nervous systems that uh, might interfere with the ejaculatory process. There may be neuropsychiatric drugs that are delaying or, or inhibiting ejaculation. There may be relationship issues, psychogenic issues that interfere with uh, or that inhibit ejaculation. Other sexual dysfunctions may be involved. So for example, a man with erectile dysfunction may not uh, have a sufficient erection in order to ejaculate, or perhaps there's low sexual desire. So there could be a variety of other sexual dysfunctions that need to be checked out. 
Uh, there's been some suggestion that low serum testosterone is a factor, but these results are not uh, consistent. So while there may be some, some uh, suggestion to uh, assess testosterone, it's not a strong suggestion at this point. I'll come back to this uh, momentarily. With respect to the evaluation, clinicians should assess the medical relationship and sexual history and perform a focused physical exam to evaluate a patient with delayed ejaculation. Now I point out that the uh, focused physical exam isn't looking for anything in particular, just kind of a general uh, exam, uh, sometimes in the pelvic and groin area. Part of this is to perhaps reassure the uh, patient that in fact all angles are being checked out. So when it comes to the evaluation of delayed ejaculation, well, the history and physical are certainly relevant. As I mentioned, there may be value in assessing CRMT, but that's uh, questionable at this point because the results are not highly consistent. And there may be some adjunct evaluations that are also uh, relevant. All evaluations of DE, however, should assess onset, any cultural or interpersonal factors or psychological factors that may seem to be influencing the uh, problem of reaching ejaculation. It's important, of course, that the clinician distinguish among orgasm, emission, ejaculation, some of the other uh, uh, disorders of climax that were mentioned earlier. And of course, if the clinician is assessing the onset, then that's going to help determine whether the delayed ejaculation is lifelong or acquired. Over here uh, on the right-hand side, there's a rather involved and complex flow chart that might be worth considering. I'm not going to go over this, but in the future, when this information, when these slides become available to you, it certainly might be worth looking at that uh, um, flow chart uh, a little more carefully. There may be some additional tests that are clinically indicated, but again, this tends to be the exception rather than the rule. For example, uh, some uh, clinicians will recommend biothesiometry, biothesiometry meaning determining the sensory thresholds of the penis, uh, different areas of the penis. We know, for example, that men who are quite elderly have much lower sensitivity, penile sensitivity than do younger men, but seldom are these really the primary causes for delayed ejaculation. Also, as we've mentioned, perhaps T levels might be assessed. Again, there is some uh, inconsistency here, but as perhaps a general indication of the sexual health of the man, this might be relevant, particularly if uh, penile size is, is diminished and may be a consideration. It's known that uh, T uh, increases penile girth as a general rule. Going on to the third topic, the mental health evaluation, clinicians should consider referring men diagnosed with lifelong, notice lifelong or acquired delayed ejaculation to a mental health professional with expertise in sexual health. The psychological approaches follow two general strategies. 
and those strategies may benefit from guidance from a specialist and this again might be a brief therapy uh, that involves anywhere from several sessions to up to 10 sessions and so on. However, the approaches, the two general strategies are generally focused on the following. First, clinicians might advise men with DE that modifying their sexual positions or practices may be of benefit because they can increase or maximize arousal. There's a fair amount of evidence indicating that men with delayed ejaculation are insufficiently aroused. They don't reach the levels of arousal that they might have reached previously or certainly not reached the levels that are necessary to ejaculate. So that's one general strategy. The other strategy is to manage the negative uh, emotional fallout that occurs from the uh, um, uh, delayed ejaculation. And we'll talk about each of these briefly separately. So going back to increasing arousal, if a man can masturbate to orgasm, that suggests that although you can't necessarily change the threshold to ejaculation, you may be able to help the man increase his arousal. Typically what a clinician would do in this case is to look at these potential areas of, uh, of possibility. One, perhaps assessing reasons for the lack of arousal. Does it have something to do with the partner's attractiveness? Does it have something to do with sexual motivation? Does it have something to do with the sexual dynamics with the partner? That is, things that the partner does perhaps are a turn off and so on. It may involve increasing arousal by modifying the interactions with the partner. For example, expanding the sexual repertoire or practices so that things that are seen as being more erotic or arousing might be incorporated into coital sex. It might involve more direct stimulation and could certainly benefit from uh, more effective communication between the couple regarding the needs uh, that the man might have for increased stimulation to, to generate greater arousal. It may involve, the third, third point here, altering the types and frequencies of sexual activity and specifically addressing masturbation. If masturbation is a frequent activity of of the man, then this may be worth further consideration. And I take you then to the next slide just to kind of give you an idea here that often what happens is that men who masturbate frequently do so with a very stereotypic pattern and they may include fantasies. And this pattern of stimulation and these fantasies may not match the, uh, the real situation with the partner. And the idea then is to help transfer the partner from, from this masturbatory activity to uh, a more reconciled experience with, uh, with respect to partnered sex. Another bringing, in other words, bringing the experience of masturbation closer to that of partnered sex. And there are any number of ways that this can be achieved. Obviously, in, in this kind of a, a masturbation retraining program, uh, effective communication is required with the partner and obviously the assistance of the partner is going to be required as well. So this would typically involve some sort of couples therapy. Going back to the second major goal of psychobehavioral strategies, remember the first one is to increase arousal. The second one is to manage the distress so distress and negative emotions are known to interfere with arousal and thus with ejaculation. 
Hence, they can become barriers to reaching ejaculation. There are two kinds of negative emotional uh, conditions that might be considered, those directly related to not reaching orgasm. In other words, the man might feel bad, might feel shame, embarrassment, guilt, uh, uh, self-blame, whatever, for not being able to ejaculate. And uh, uh, part of the psychobehavioral intervention may help the man deal with those sorts of emotions, the, the onus, the burden of the sexual dysfunction but they might also be related to other kinds of fears and anxieties and hostilities that are related to ejaculation. For example, the man may have a fear of semen loss. Uh, it may involve fear of impregnation, fear of hurting the partner. For example, if there has been any kind of um, uh, cancerous uh, situation with a partner. It may involve religious guilt, hostility, anger. All of these issues may be issues that actually lead to inhibition of, of ejaculatory response in men. So this gives you kind of a brief overview of how this might be dealt with from a psychological mental health professional viewpoint. Thank you very much. And I'll turn this back to Dr. Carrier. Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Schindel, I apologize. David, thank you very much for uh, the excellent talk, Drs. Roland and Carrier. So we'll finish up the session now talking a little bit about the medical approach to management of delayed ejaculation. Uh, a guideline statement suggests that men who are taking a medication which may interfere with ejaculation latency should consider either drug replacement, dose adjustment, or stage cessation of the drug uh, with appropriate consultation to the prescribing physician. In the majority of cases, uh, the drug in question in this case would be a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor administered for depressive symptoms. Obviously, we do use SSRIs, as we've talked about, for management of premature ejaculation, but in an otherwise healthy man without ejaculatory issues, SSRIs are a major contributor to delay of ejaculation and even anorgasmia. Given the potential psychological ramifications of SSRI therapy, uh, we do recommend that the urologist consult with the prescribing physician, discuss options and alternatives, and make sure that it's safe. And if cessation is elected, a staged graded weaning off of the drug should certainly be contemplated in close consultation with the uh, treating physician. Other drugs that may be worthy of consideration as potential factors here would be antiandrogens, again, oftentimes administered for treatment of prostate cancer. And once again, a very careful decision would have to be had between patient and prescribing physician about whether it's advisable to stop antiandrogens, particularly given the weak evidence basis of the link between testosterone and ejaculatory function. We have to state at this time that after reviewing the available body of literature on medical management, oral pharmacotherapy for delayed ejaculation, the panel is not at this time able to recommend that we can give a conclusive answer to the question of risk-benefit ratio for any sort of medical therapy for delayed ejaculation. Having said that, a number of therapies do exist, which we will review during this presentation, to give some sense of what is available out there and what has been investigated uh, by experts in the field. We do recommend that at this time, no non-invasive that no invasive therapy is recommended. Specifically, in, a, in the context of a man who has erectile dysfunction and delayed ejaculation, it is important to emphasize to patients that placement of a penile prosthetic or other invasive procedure may resolve erectile dysfunction, but it cannot be expected that it will do, uh, resolve any issue with delayed ejaculation. 
and it's worth querying patients considering penile implant surgery, that this uh, implant surgery may not address any fundamental issue of delayed ejaculation or orgasm. In terms of medical therapies that are available, one that's quite safe and has some evidence to support is the use of penile vibratory stimulation. A small study from Christopher Nelson, uh, 36 patients with delayed ejaculation, administered uh, a vibratory stimulation to the frenulum of the penis, producing in many men a, a sense of subjective improvement. Given the favorable safety profile of vibratory stimulation when applied appropriately, this is a reasonable recommendation to make to patients for consideration should they find that an acceptable practice. Oxytocin is a neuropeptide derived from the pituitary gland, which has known important effects in the management of and, and triggering of pelvic relaxation and also uh, with uh, orgasmic responses. It has been investigated as a therapy in a number of studies administered in intranasal form. You can see from these relatively small studies that the actual change objectively in latency time is quite limited. However, there was some evidence from the study from 2008 suggesting a subjective difference in ejaculatory response and orgasmic response in men who were administered the drug, in a sense that they could detect that the drug was in their system after they had used it. Bupropion is an atypical antidepressant with dopaminergic and noradrenergic activity. Uh, given the role of dopamine in triggering orgasm, there has been some interest in bupropion either as an adjunct to SSRI-based therapy or as a monotherapy for management of uh, ejaculatory issues. Small studies uh, from the 2000s did indicate some possibility of benefit, but it's worth keeping in mind that the degree of benefit noticed in these studies was quite modest, and you should not necessarily expect there to be a dramatic change. Bupropion is a medication that urologists are oftentimes not totally familiar with, and therefore, if uh, you are a practitioner who does not widely utilize types of this type of drugs, it may be worth considering referral to a specialist who has greater comfort and expertise in addressing these issues. Finally, cabergoline, a dopaminergic drug which is used primarily for the suppression of prolactin-secreting tumors, has a body of evidence uh, from Baylor University looking at a, a non-randomized, non-placebo-controlled cohort of men with delayed ejaculation who received treatment. Once again, subjective benefit was noted, but in the absence of a placebo control arm, it's difficult to definitively ascribe the benefit to the therapy itself. That said, there is some interest and inquiry in this medication as an option for men with bothersome delayed ejaculation. Testosterone, as Dr. Rowland articulated earlier, uh, is something that we will routinely recommend assessing in men with sexual concerns of any kind. And there is some evidence to suggest that testosterone therapy may play a role in managing uh, sexual problems in general and perhaps delayed ejaculation specifically. A study to this effect uh, was uh, published by Paduke et al. back in 2015, looking at men who received testosterone therapy over a period of time. The top line results of the study as published did not indicate that the therapy had any marked benefit in terms of ejaculatory delay. However, in a post hoc analysis uh, involving a relatively small subset of the men who did actually achieve therapeutic levels of testosterone, there was some benefit. These data are waiting uh, peer review and publication, and therefore this can only be considered an expert opinion at this time, but it is something we'll be eager to see the results of this study if and when it is published. It is recommended that men with delayed ejaculation and comorbid erectile dysfunction, which is a very common scenario, be managed according to the AUA guidelines on erectile dysfunction. This does mean administering whatever therapies and tests and evaluations are appropriate for the diagnosis of ED in the man with comorbid conditions. In conclusion, we can say that despite a relatively poor understanding of the neurophysiology of these disorders, we do have a number of treatment options available. And in many cases, education and mental health 
assessment are very critical components and involvement to mental health colleagues plays an important role. That said, urologic practitioners and non-mental health professionals certainly have a role to play and can offer patients evidence-based therapies with good uh, reason to believe that they will be effective. We do believe that our guideline is the most up-to-date, robust, and uh, current guidance on management of delayed and premature ejaculation. So we are hopeful that it will be beneficial to practitioners who see these patients on a routine basis. With that, I'd like to thank you all for your attention. Uh, we are going to open up the session up now for some question and answers. Please do submit any questions uh, to us by the chat function. We have received one question already, and actually it's, it's a multi-component question uh, uh, asking about what is normal in terms of ejaculation latency, and then some follow-up questions about does it increase with, a new par uh, with an established relationship, does it decline with a new partner, and uh, last part, a question about foreplay. Um, with respect to the first component, you know, I will say that uh, the data we have on what accounts for a normal ejaculation latency is typically derived from two studies published in the mid-2000s. Uh, Patrick was the first author on one of them, looking at non-clinical uh, populations of men in uh, Western countries and assessing ejaculation latency. And the median time to ejaculation in those studies was about five to six minutes. There was a very wide range, you know, with some men having very rapid ejaculation, other men having latency times of 20 to 30 minutes. So it does show some evidence that there is a range of what's normal. And many patients who present to us, you know, looking for management options may have skewed notions of what's normal. You know, they've, they've viewed a lot of explicit media, they've seen things or heard things, and they have an expectation that typical ejaculation latency is 30 minutes, and that's what's normal. It is oftentimes very beneficial in my experience to counsel patients that what's, quote, normal, or at least typical, is about five minutes. And when you bring that information to bear, many patients will conclude that, oh, you know, maybe I'm okay after all, and this is not as major an issue as I thought it was. Anecdotally, and based on clinical experience, I will say that uh, typically during first sexual encounters with a partner, many patients do endorse uh, premature ejaculation or at least quick ejaculation latency, but it does tend to increase over time. Uh, Dr. Rowland, I'd like to enlist your aid for addressing the last question. Uh, specifically, the question was asked, does longer foreplay help or hurt in premature ejaculation management? I think Dr. Roland, you disappeared. Sorry, am I back? Was, okay, I, can hear you. <laughs> I think I hit the wrong buttons there. Uh, well, well, here's something to think about, okay? And that is that uh, usually foreplay is not going to be beneficial to the man with premature ejaculation who has a very rapid rise to uh, high levels of arousal. On the other hand, one of the approaches that is taken by the mental health professional is to help the man uncouple the experience of stimulation, this is called sensate focus, uncouple the experience of stimulation with necessarily the experience of ejaculation, that is relaxing in response to the sensory stimulation rather than becoming aroused. So there are ways where um, this kind of stimulation can be beneficial, but I think that most would agree that increasing um, uh, foreplay is not actually going to help the man with premature ejaculation. 
usually what, uh, what a clinician will do is work with a couple to come up with a sexual repertoire and an order of, of uh, activities that seems to help the couple in general. So for example, it may start with foreplay of some kind with the female. I don't know if we were talking about male or female foreplay, but certainly extended foreplay that is directed towards the woman could be very useful as a way of getting the woman moving forward without necessarily stimulating the man. So uh, these things are usually best worked out through communication processes that might occur between a couple and a therapist who can get the couple to open up about what really seems to work and what doesn't seem to work. That's, that's a brief answer to a very complex question. Thank you for that, Dr. Roland. Uh, Dr. Carrier, a question uh, that came in recently uh, about, you know, we have a number of first-line agents listed, you know, drugs that we consider first-line agents of choice in managing premature ejaculation. What is your decision process and, and how do you help a man select which therapy is most appropriate for his circumstance? Well, it, it, I guess it depends on the patient. And where, I think um, the first thing I discussed with them is what is considered normal. I do exactly what you just did. Uh, you just said a few uh, moments ago. And some of them will decide not to uh, go ahead. I work closely with um, uh, sexologists or psychologists that are um, um, doing a lot of uh, sex therapy. And um, I discuss this option with patients. And I do believe combination works much better than just drug. And um, uh, and um, I offer them medication uh, to help them uh, in the when you have a combination. Personally, I believe the SSRI are the easiest one and the best one to use. And that's in my practice. This is what I'm going to use first. Um, initially, I prefer to use them daily because the data show that daily works much better than uh, uh, on demand. And if daily works, then um, uh, I can, you know, I discuss with them if they want to try uh, on demand. And um, but in my experience, uh, if they don't have a little bit of uh, psychological intervention or help, uh, once they stop the medication, the premature ejaculation will come back. Um, the, uh, the, the man who has acquired premature ejaculation because he has a new partner in, in, this, in this situation, sometimes, uh, you know, after a few months of medication, you can, you can stop the medication and actually uh, they continue to do good. But that's different for the uh, lifelong uh, premature ejaculation. So considering uh, perhaps even a, a limited duration treatment with an SSRI is something that you would consider for patients and maybe offer to them if they were distressed and potentially bothered by that. Exactly. And I think it's, a, a, it's different than uh, other conditions. I think it's a communication between the physician and the patient and the partner is, uh, is important. And they need to understand that if they, we refer them to a psychologist, it's not because they're crazy. It's because we uh, really feel that uh, they, they, they'll be helped. Great. Thanks so much for that. 
uh, a question came in from someone who's obviously read some of the literature on this and had a question about the provisional diagnoses uh, promoted by uh, the late and, and lamented Marcel Waldinger, for those who don't know, a, a true pioneer and great uh, investigator on issues of ejaculation. Um, Dr. Rowland, I wondered if you had any, any thoughts on those provisional diagnoses, specifically premature ejaculation-like disorder and natural variable PE, as articulated by Dr. Waldinger. Yes. Um, my view on this is that any tool that is helpful in working with the patient is worth considering. And if, in fact, helping men understand that they are not alone in what they are experiencing, this can often be somewhat reassuring for the man. So the specific diagnoses, I, I don't really have an opinion whether they should be used or not. But what I am saying is that sometimes this kind of language and assurance can help men understand that this is a problem that may come periodically, that it may be <clears throat> something that is uh, an experience but not necessarily a reality and you're not in a, in a group by yourself or that uh, because you get this sense that all men are lasting 30 minutes and you are not, you're not a premature ejaculator and so on. So I would tend to say that any tool in the toolbox is worth considering and that always comes through in the conversation that uh, that you're having with the patient and as the patient express his or her concerns it may be worthwhile then thinking about uh, these other categories as ones that could be useful for the patient's understanding of his particular situation you know thank you for that dr Rowland. I, I like what you said about you know conditions like this may come along periodically and that's certainly a highly relevant statement for disorders of ejaculation uh, for, for those participants who may not be entirely familiar, um, the conditions that we were just discussing, premature ejaculation-like disorder is something that Dr. Walding articulated as a man who presents uh, claiming that he has premature ejaculation, but who has a normal latency time. And in, in many cases, this is a man who is distressed and has a perception that if he lasts longer sexually, that he will be a more desirable lover and, and, and a better sexual partner. And then the natural variable variant of that was the notion that some men intermittently, for reasons that aren't entirely clear, may on occasion experience uh, ejaculation within a very short latency time. But if this does not represent the norm, and it's a, a situational variable thing that does not occur routinely enough to be distressing, it uh, does not meet criteria for clinical premature ejaculation. That's the distinction that Dr. Waldinger drew with these two, again, provisional diagnoses, which are not widely accepted, but were articulated, and in my mind at least, potentially help explain the 30% statistical prevalence you might see if you read literature on this and reconcile that with the 5% uh, prevalence of clinical premature ejaculation as we currently define it. Uh, another question, uh, Dr. Carrier, you, you made pretty clear that SSRIs are sort of your preferred management uh, for the patient with premature ejaculation. A question came in asking specifically, is there a situation or are there particular patients in whom you believe a topical anesthetic would be more appropriate? Oh, definitely. A patient with um, bipolar disease, a younger patient, um, very young patient um, uh, that are 
maybe uh, uh, more inclined where they have some symptoms of depression, um, I will use the uh, local anesthetic uh, definitively. The um, uh, in patient, I believe that they may be uh, um, hooked on medication. Uh, then I use a topical anesthesia, uh, anesthetic uh, medication. And uh, I mean, they also work. And um, the uh, caveat is if they don't have a regular partner, that's a little bit more difficult to use. But if uh, I tell pay the young patient, if they go to uh, an evening and they think they're going to have uh, an event, uh, I tell them to put it before they go out. So uh, they can be uh, use it. But uh, obviously, topical anesthetic, it's easier to use when you have a regular partner. Clearly the case. Uh, do you have a particular formulation of local anesthetic that you prefer or that you recommend as perhaps a, a better starting point? Well, um, anything with uh, xylocaine in, into it. There's a few on the, mar on the market um, uh, and uh, they can be easily accessible for the patient. And um, there's one or two companies that have uh, a pre-filled uh, uh, either a bottle or um, a pack that you can buy and uh, you can use. So I recommend those one to the, the patient. Yeah, I think the spray options and, and topical ointments, they're all certainly options. And again, in my practice, I tend to gravitate towards the spray versions in part because they are easier to apply, uh, less goopy for lack of a better term to describe that. <laughs> but obviously there are circumstances where either formulation can be appropriate. And as Dr. Carrier says, in my practice, xylocaine, prilocaine preparations most commonly what I would turn to. Yeah. And I would be aligned with you in terms of the patient I might select for that, in terms of the patient who I'm worried about the side effects of antidepressant type drugs. Um, obviously, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the mental health angle here. And I think that clearly there's a need for experts uh, who deal with this every day, all day, and can really, you know, navigate the sometimes thorny issues. And someone is asking a question, is there sort of a five-minute uh, sex therapy consult? Or, or Dr. Rowland, you can help us articulate, what should the urologist know about sex therapy? Or what can we do to help our patients accept it as an option when I'll speak from personal experience here, there are many patients who adamantly refuse for any combination of reasons, but um, any thoughts on that? Yes, we're talking about premature ejaculation or delayed ejaculation here. Is this Both. Both, okay. Well, I can, it's easy for me to start with delayed ejaculation. And, and the reason for this is that and, and in the slide that we showed, I indicated that a man with delayed ejaculation might benefit from guidance from a mental health professional. And that was worded in that particular way because it is my sense that the urologist can certainly have an educative conversation with the patient that indicates that there are two things to consider here. One is, how do you increase your arousal? what strategies might you think about that and working with your partner? And the second is, so how do you deal with the negative emotions that you're feeling? And it could well be that a man and his uh, partner are able to work some of these things out on their own and try some things without necessarily going to a mental health professional. 
So I think that it really is worthwhile for the urologist to educate him or herself with respect to suggesting strategies that might be useful without going into a lot of detail. I think what would be perhaps most beneficial with respect to delayed ejaculation is to suggest these strategies, but then have the name of a person that might be uh, a reference or perhaps a telemed telemedicine uh, reference or te tel telecounseling reference, whatever, would be an appropriate way to go where the, uh, the, the urologist actually introduces some of the ideas and says, well, if you want to explore this further, then you might consider contacting so-and-so. I think you can use the same strategy for um, uh, premature ejaculation. In other words, there are a couple of things that are critical here. And one is, does the couple own the problem together or is there a lot of blaming going on here? And I think that just addressing some relationship issues such as how does this make your partner feel? Is your partner concerned about this? Is, is your partner working with you on this to come up with strategies? Things like that can be helpful uh, directions that the urologist might lay out. As I said also uh, in one of the slides that, uh, that one of the strategies for um, uh, psychological intervention is to look for ways to attenuate arousal. And there are a variety of things that couples might do in order to uh, uh, pursue that. And these might be done in combination, say with uh, an ointment or perhaps with a medication. So I would always suggest that the urologists know about some of the options and be able to say in very brief ways without going into any depth that, look, here's an area that you might think about. Here's an area that you might think about. Maybe you can work on this on your own. And if it doesn't, if you don't seem to be successful, then maybe you want to talk to so and so or go to this website and find, find uh, a referral and so on. That's what I would typically say would be, I think, a good approach to this. Yeah. A couple of other questions that have come in asking about the dosing and timing of, of both SSRIs and tricyclic antidepressants, I'm sorry, and uh, topical anesthetics for management of these conditions. I would say that in general, um, you can start to expect results from SSRIs within a couple of weeks, and I would give it at least a solid month before altering dosing. In terms of administering uh, topical anesthetics, uh, as Dr. Carrier was articulating earlier, there is a notion that you can apply it well in advance, you know, potentially have some residual numbing effect, even if it's several hours later, but typically in the majority of studies that are done on this topic, the topical anesthetic is applied shortly before intercourse starts, yeah. usually left in place for about five to 10 minutes and then either washed off or a condom is applied to help reduce the risk of transfer to the partner. And the principal side effect of this seems to not to be so much numbness on the part of the partner, but rather uh, irritation you know, from the local anesthetic effect, which sometimes causes a stinging or burning sensation. Uh, another question uh, that came in, a couple of them actually, were talking about prostatitis. And those of you familiar with these literature are, know that prostatitis, and from our own slides, is a purported correlation and an association with premature ejaculation diagnoses. The evidence basis for this is not robust. Um, it is not particularly strong. And I would say that prostatitis itself is a challenging diagnosis because in the vast majority of cases, when you diagnose prostatitis, it's in the absence of any clear evidence of confirmatory infection. 
So my general, my personal practice, and Sarah, perhaps you can comment on this as well, is that I do not routinely recommend antibiotic therapy uh, in the absence of evidence for infection. And certainly I would not recommend empiric antibiotic therapy for a man with premature ejaculation who's otherwise asymptomatic, or if he does not have evidence of a bacterial infection, I would still recommend against uh, use of antibiotic therapy for PE. Uh, Dr. Carrier, do you have any opinions or thoughts on that? I completely agree. I mean, the, um, there's some literature on it, but uh, in fact, in, your, in any practice, I'm sure you don't see that many patients that complain of uh, prostatitis and premature ejaculation. And, um, and I agree, I'm not going to use antibiotic if the patient is completely asymptomatic. Uh, and it's already difficult to uh, diagnose uh, prostatitis unless you have a positive culture, uh, very evident. But um, again, I, I recommend against using antibiotic just to, uh, to rule that out. Uh, a question came up, uh, and, and either of you, uh, Dr. Roland or Carrie, can maybe address this too. Uh, someone asked a question about uh, premature ejaculation in the context of non-coital sex, so oral sex or anal sex. Um, I, I can give my opinion, but I wondered if either of you wanted to make a comment on that. Specifically is the question. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll start off by saying, and I'll answer the question myself to some extent, that there are limited data on ejaculation latency and troublesome ejaculation latency in the context of non-coital sex. In fact, the ISSM definition specifically articulates uh, premature ejaculation as a phenomenon of vaginal penetration. And this was not designed nor intended to be uh, you know, exclusionary of anyone else or any other kind of sexual activity, but that's simply where the data are. And the body of evidence and literature investigating uh, premature ejaculation in the context of oral sex, masturbation, anal sex, uh, men who have sex with men, the data exists, it's there, but it tends not to be quantitative in nature and it is quite limited. Um, any, any other I, thought? That I can add a little bit to this and that is that um, uh, one of the studies that we have done, which will be published soon, or maybe it's been published, uh, looked at men who have sex with men and who are therefore engaging in anal sex. And we found that their um their estimations of their ejaculation latencies were no different from uh that is the men with premature ejaculation who fell into that group their estimations of their own and also the estimations of men with pe were no different from uh, men who have sex with women in other words suggesting that when it comes to vaginal or anal sex this may not really be an issue. Obviously, there are going to be things that, that play um, uh, mitigating roles here. So, for example, if, if a person finds anal sex to be extremely arousing, more arousing than, say, uh, uh, vaginal sex, sex then, then, of course, there's going to be a, a greater uh, rise or, or curve to arousal, and, and therefore the um, uh, ejaculatory latency might be further shortened. So there, and this may be true of oral sex. It may be that oral sex is high. It may be that oral sex is not as effective as uh, in arousal as um, 
uh, vaginal or or anal sex. So so there there's variation that's very difficult to control there because there's not just the actual physical stimulation that's occurring, but there's the subjective perception of how erotic this is to the to the individual that's experiencing it. But I can say that with respect to men who have sex with men and men who have sex with women, we did not find significant differences when we asked them about partnered sex. We didn't specifically go into oral sex uh, or masturbation as, as uh, types of activity there, though. Uh, we are at the uh, 6.30, I'm sorry, 7.30 time point uh, for those of you on the East Coast. Uh, just briefly, I, I do want to mention there was questions about specific SSRIs. I will say that in general, paroxetine of the available drugs in the United States tends to have the greatest ejaculation prolongation effect. That is not to say it is necessarily the best choice because it also has in many men a higher side effect profile. So ultimately, all of these drugs have efficacy. It is not entirely clear that overall superiority has been conclusively demonstrated, uh, although, uh, as I said, paroxetine seems to have the greatest ejaculation delaying effect of the available drugs. A couple of other questions about dipoxetine, also known as Prilogy, uh, mentioned briefly in this conversation, but it is an SSRI on demand available for use in other countries and approved by regulatory bodies in many other nations but not approved for use in the United States or Canada and therefore we chose not to highlight it. I do recommend that those of you who are interested can certainly uh, review the upcoming guidelines and uh, many of the questions that unfortunately we didn't get a chance to get to during the session can be addressed in that context and so certainly uh, please do uh, follow up and, and we are the three of us obviously available for questions that come in I'd be happy to speak offline with anyone uh, who has additional questions. And I do thank you all for your participation in this.